Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, I'm going to share with you an interview that I did with Richard Dean Winfield. Richard is a candidate for the U.S. Senate, and he's running for that Senate seat that is currently held by Kelly Leffler. Richard's campaign is interesting because of the platform that he has put forward. His platform is organized around what he calls a new social bill of rights, and key to that is a proposal for a federal jobs guarantee that would guarantee jobs to everyone with wages starting at $20 per hour. Richard also backs Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, and a proposal that he describes as Medicare for All but for legal services that would allow all people to have adequate representation in a courtroom, no matter their own circumstances. Despite such an expansive agenda, Richard still trails his Democratic opponents in polling, and so not only did we talk about the ideas that his campaign is putting forward, but we also talked about the political realities he's facing and the impact that his campaign could have on the chances that Democrats get a candidate into the runoff. Remember, this is that jungle primary race where all parties will be on the ballot on general election day in November, and then unless somebody wins the race outright, the two candidates that get the most votes will make a January runoff. Lastly, I think this conversation is valuable merely for the fact that it's often difficult for us to get candidates to explain their views in a really full-throated way, and Richard really didn't hold back on this. And so I think this discussion gives us great insights into where he stands on the issues. So with that, let me turn it over to my conversation with Richard Dean Winfield. Joining the podcast is Richard Dean Winfield, a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. He is running in that jungle primary for the Senate seat that is currently held by Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Richard, I've been really intrigued by the campaign that you are running in the Senate race. Uh, This, as far as I'm aware, is sort of your second major campaign that you've run. You also ran for Congress uh, two years ago in 2018. Um, But for listeners who are just getting to know you, can you tell them a little bit about your background and what led you to jump into electoral politics and and what led you to jump into this U.S. Senate race? Yeah, I I grew up in Queens, New York City, and then a a suburb of the New York metro area. And I uh, ended up going to Yale as an undergraduate as someone who had gone through the public schools and was one of the the first class at Yale that had a majority of public school kids as opposed to preppies. And I I was interested in all of the political turmoil of that day. We're speaking about the 60s and early 70s. Uh, But I was also really interested with trying to really figure out what justice is, what truth is. And I became involved in thinking and, and, and studying philosophy. And I ended up going to graduate school. I had a very inspiring teacher as an undergraduate. And I went into philosophy PhD program, came out of it in 1977, struggled for about five years to find a full-time teaching job because the academic market had collapsed after the great expansion of state institutions had ended. But I finally found a job, a full-time job in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia. And I came here in 1982. And I've been here ever since. Uh, I was joined by my wife, who I had met in New York a couple of years before I came down here. And she came from India to join me. She became a lawyer, uh, first practicing in behalf of employees. Then uh, more recently, she's an immigration attorney. We've raised three children in Athens, all of whom attended the public schools. I became a member of the Communication Workers of America, which is trying to organize all employees in the state university system. And I I worked for many years on problems of uh, thinking through in the field of philosophy, you know, why it is that self-determination is central to both thought and action, and then thinking hard about what the institutions of freedom are. And then after the election of Donald Trump, I felt it was time to, to put theory into practice take a break from the ivory tower. And I, and I put myself in the electoral race in the 10th district of Georgia, a deep red district, but I thought I would have a shot, perhaps for just that reason, uh, to perhaps become the Democratic nominee. And I was interested in, in putting forward a very bold job guarantee social rights agenda. 
And I did not succeed in getting past the primary, but the, the big challenges we face as a nation have only grown more, more deep and difficult. And I felt that it was time to enter the race for Senate, uh, despite the enormity of running for Senate, and give it a shot. So you are you have built on that agenda, I believe, since 2018. You are running on this new social bill of rights um, that you say takes up the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. Um, and I, as I've observed other Georgia campaigns, I think your agenda is unique for how expansive it is, how many issues it touches on, and the boldness of the solutions that you're offering. Um, can you give us just an overview of the agenda that you're running on? Sure. I mean, I think one way of thinking about it is to go back to our Constitution, which is the oldest continuously functioning Constitution in the world, but also the shortest, which reflects the fact that our Constitution spells out our rights as property owners, as participants in, in the civil legal process, and as members of a representative democracy, but says nothing about our rights as family members and members of society. And because of that, you know, we find ourselves in, in a situation where these rights have never been fully protected. And that leaves us susceptible of all sorts of blockages of opportunity in the household and in society that not only restrict our freedom in those crucial domains, but also impede our ability to participate really as equal members of a self-governing democracy. And this is sort of reflected in how throughout all of our history, we've had waves and waves of various kinds of movements, civil rights movements, women movements, gay rights movements, which have been trying to ensure that the rights that are specified in our constitution are consistently realized. We all know that at the beginning of our republic, the only people who could fully exercise the rights specified in the constitution were white heterosexual men who had property. But at every juncture on our history where it's, we have made a really uh, a breakthrough in having those rights apply to all individuals, irrespective of right, of race, gender, and sexual orientation and sexual identity, we find that we still remain encumbered by all sorts of social disadvantage that shackle our democracy. And this was recognized by FDR in his last speech to Congress in 1944, where he called for a new Bill of Rights, which is really what I'm, 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 I'm starting from. And, and if we ask what are the rights, they're the rights that he laid out. He said, we, we have a right to a livelihood, a decent livelihood. We have a right to healthcare. We have a right to decent housing. We have a right to food and, and clothing. We have a right to be able to balance work and family. We have a right to have a, a fair playing field between employer and employee. We have a right to the arts and culture, a right to education at all levels, a right to legal representation. But our constitution does not yet give us those rights. That's why we need an additional social rights agenda. And alas, he died. The country did not implement this agenda. A quarter century later, after all the breakthroughs of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, who had also won the Nobel Prize, he knew that the social disadvantage facing African-Americans and in many respects, Americans in general, still remained in force. And that to, to solve it, we needed to attend to those social rights that FDR had spoken of. And that required pursuing a, an agenda. He put in the framework of a poor people's campaign um, and his wife, Coretta Scott King, six years after his death, launched a a campaign for full employment. Both of these campaigns were ignored by the nation. So here we are, you know, facing a converging world crises of a pandemic, of a worldwide economic collapse, of an advancing climate crisis, problems of course involving nuclear proliferation, and an outbreak of outrage over the continuance of, of racial disadvantage. And I think now more than ever, we need to return to this social bill of rights and change the political conversation, make this a central plank of what is up for grabs in this crucial election. And that's what I'm trying to do. So some other standout progressive 
candidates that have caught fire in recent years. I'm thinking of people like Bernie Sanders and his two presidential campaigns, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her campaign where she uh, challenged a, a long-term incumbent in Congress. A lot of those campaigns seem to be centered around a demand for Medicare for all. But your campaign seems to be anchored by this call for a jobs guarantee. And so why center your agenda around the need for a federal jobs guarantee? I mean, I, I think the federal job guarantee, which fulfills the right to a decent livelihood, and at one blow wipes out unemployment and poverty income for good, it is something that is not sufficient to fulfill all our social rights, but it is something necessary without which none of the other rights can properly be, be achieved. And uh, we'll see this with regard to, to healthcare and Medicare for all. What the federal job guarantee does is it allows anyone who can't find a job in the marketplace to go to our government as employer of last resort. And our government will have the responsibility of providing offers of employment, not competing with the private market, but offering jobs that will produce goods and services that we need, but which are not being provided for in the marketplace. And that means today, you know, we need to refurbish our crumbling infrastructure. We need to build a new green energy in infrastructure. We need to have public transportation. We need broadband for all, which is more crucial now in a pandemic than ever. You know, how can you work remotely, study remotely, or, or get services if you don't have broadband? We need to provide all the human services that are, are not fully developed in healthcare, in education, in all sorts of human services. Uh, we also need to bring the arts and culture to everyone. You know, access to the arts should not be limited by how much money we have. And uh, this is something that the federal job guarantee can do. And we've seen how it could be done during the New Deal with the Works Progress Administration. You know, in a couple of months, the New Deal uh, regime under FDR had put 11 and a half million people to work, providing all of these great public infrastructures, arts and so forth that we're still enjoying today. And they did it when the country was in its worst economic crisis, when it had a third of the population it does now, when it had only 6% of the wealth we do now. So this is something that is perfectly feasible. And it is good for business because it provides maximum consumer demand. It, in other words, ensures that everyone has money in their pocket, without which the economy cannot thrive. It lifts the fear of firing, which in America is more extreme than anywhere else in the developed world, because here, if you lose your job, there is no federal job guarantee. You, you'll be without a job, without income. You also, in America, will lose important benefits that are tied to employment, like healthcare for many people. And in addition, you know, you, you'll find yourself uh, in a situation where here we have less employee empowerment than anywhere else in the developed world, with the smallest amount of unionization, with the most restrictive labor laws, with no role in enterprise governance. And that's why, as the Me Too movement has, has brought forward, uh, we're very vulnerable in the workplace. To people who wield power in a the workplace, they can get away with impunity because of the fear of firing, with sexual harassment, racial discrimination, all sorts of, of, of employer misconduct. Now, now there are two elements of, of the federal job guarantee I want to bring up that, that are crucial. It's not a matter of putting people to work at a poverty wage. It's a matter of putting people to work at a fair wage. And I'm afraid that many people um, among Democratic candidates are calling for a living wage at $15 an hour, and, and many labor unions are doing the same. I think that's a fundamental mistake because a living wage at $15 an hour is a poverty wage. It's a recipe for, for homelessness. Uh, even Fox News in, in the Atlanta area recently reported that no one can, can live at all decently in Georgia if you don't make more than $19 an hour. Uh, you need, we need to start, first of all, with a decent, fair income of at least $20 an hour. And to make it fair, we have to ensure that it not only keeps pace with inflation, but keeps pace with the rise in our national wealth and our national productivity. Because you know, that is what alone can put a cap 
on the increasing inequality of wealth and income that is a threat to our democracy as well as to our livelihoods. So your platform, it calls for this federal guarantee for jobs. It calls for the $20 minimum wage. And another part of that that is key uh, for workers is your platform also calls for revolutionary changes to the rights of workers to collectively bargain and shape the policies of their workplace. So what new rights would your plan for unions grant workers? And what impact do you think these new rights would have, particularly in Georgia as state, that you know you mentioned we generally have lower unionization rates in the US compared to other developed countries in Georgia those rates are even lower than the national average in the US what kinds of benefits are going to come from your uh, plan for unions yeah now you know we have to to face up to the fact that employees who make up about 95% of breadwinners in America and pretty much in any market society uh, are more disempowered in the United States than in other developed nations. Uh, that's partly because our labor laws are very restrictive. In America, about, well, 94% of employees in the private sector have no union. They are, in a sense, at risk of being fired at will with no justification and no due process. That is not allowed in any other developed nation. Of course, our president takes great delight in firing people. Uh, made a career on reality TV doing so. But in addition to that, other nations have as a matter of, of employee right paid leave. We don't have any right to paid leave. And that's become absolutely crucial in a time of pandemic when you may have to stay at home and quarantine and the like. But how can you survive if you don't have paid leave? We have no paid parental leave. So when a newborn comes into, into the world, uh, one is able to have an income during the time you, you have to take off. This is, of course, particularly crucial for women. And uh, in addition, we have in this country something that is forbidden anywhere else. Employees can demand that you work overtime and they can fire you if you don't want to. That's, that's bad for families, that's bad for your health, that's bad for workplace safety, but it's allowed in our, our nation. Now, we, as I mentioned, we have 6% of our workforce unionized in the private sector. In the public sector, it's a little over 30, but that's kind of illusory. Because public employees like myself, I'm a public employee at, uh, at the University of Georgia, we are basically, if we are union members, we are members who have essentially two, two arms tied behind our back. Because right to work laws, which are in force in every state governed by a Republican state legislature, they deprive public employees of the right to strike and the right to have collective bargaining. Well, these are the two pillars of collective action, whereby employees can stand up and defend their rights and overcome the imbalance in power and opportunities between employers and employees. I mean, this is inevitable. This is an imbalance that is inevitable in the workings of the market because competition requires firms to grow and consolidate to remain competitive, which means there are automatically going to be far fewer employers than employees. You know, the idea that everyone can be an entrepreneur, that our economy can be basically made up of small business is, is, is a, I mean, it's, it's, it shows an absence of any knowledge of how uh, markets work and it's a pure fantasy. So in a sense, if we're going to even the playing field between employer and employee, we have to ensure that unionization is universal. And to do that, we've got to change the procedures that are in place because it's more and more difficult for workers to, to organize. I mean, we have, through free trade policies and globalization, uh, em employers, multinational corporations now can very easily move their operations from the United States elsewhere whenever workers try to assert their interests. The gig economy makes it possible for employers to have work done 24-7 anywhere in the world uh, with no overhead costs of offices, et cetera, and by workers who have no fixed hours, who have no opportunity to engage in solidarity with anyone else, they're completely isolated. So all these things make it extremely difficult to, to organize. And I think uh, I'm old enough to remember the day when the biggest employers in the United States were Ma Bell, AT&T, General Motors, and Ford Motor Company, all of which were unionized, and all of which paid wages that kept pace with national productivity, and where one wage earner could actually, could actually support a family. 
Now the biggest employers are all non-union and they're paying something like the minimum wage, which has stagnated since 1968 and there's not enough to live on. And I'm talking about fast food, fast food uh, companies, Walmart, Amazon, you know, these are the biggest employers today. Uh, so I'm, I'm offering one thing to change that, namely we have automatic union elections at every workplace with multiple employees, including gig economy workers, including Uber. And on the other hand, we have to do something else that has been done in other countries. We need to give employees a fair share in the governance of corporations. Currently, you have board of directors that control what corporations do. That allows CEOs to have super salaries 300 times what an ordinary worker makes. That allows a board of directors and the CEO to decide to put jobs offshore somewhere else, to disband or sell off company assets, to increase the value of stock portfolios of investors and so forth. So forth. Instead, we should have 50% of the seats reserved for employees elected by their, their peers. And that would fundamentally change corporations from within to the benefit of consumers, employees, and, and our communities. And I think these two things together would really allow our nation to be really much more just and free. And it's good for employers because frankly, it puts employer, employees in a position to have decent wages, decent work conditions, to be a stable workforce without the kind of turnover that afflicts employees when they just can't make it, given the conditions of labor. And uh, one thing that uh, we sort of didn't get to has to do with um, medical care. Um, I was mentioning how uh, the federal job guarantee is crucial to many other parts of the social rights agenda. Um, it's crucial to taking care of our healthcare rights, um, which can best be served by a Medicare for all program. Uh, which has four big advantages. First, it gives everyone the same fair coverage and the coverage should not be what Medicare currently does because Medicare is very restrictive in what it offers. It has copays and deductibles and the like. Instead, what I'm calling for is the super Medicare for all, which covers all our necessary physical, mental, dental and long-term care with no copays, no deductibles, no premiums. The second big advantage, it has complete freedom for everyone who is covered, you go to any doctor you want, you go to any healthcare provider, and they are all bound to, to, to take you. Uh, thirdly, it gets rid of all the bloated overhead of a multiplicity of for-profit private insurers who have all this overhead of uh, CEOs making super salaries, having to pay dividends to stockholders, having advertising costs, and imposing all of these extra overhead costs on healthcare providers who have to process, you know, scores of different health plans and have to have huge clerical staffs to do that. We get rid of all of that with Medicare for all. And, and fourthly, we're able to negotiate in, in united strength to drive our prices of pharmaceuticals and healthcare to what they are in other countries. You know, we pay twice as much as any other developed nation. So we could save $1.7 trillion now, the way the federal job guarantee comes in as a necessary part of the picture is that there are going to be people in the private for-profit health insurance industry who will lose their jobs as that industry withers away, since no one will really want to have private health insurance anymore, given all the benefits of, of Medicare for all. But we need to guarantee them employment, and the federal job guarantee will do that. And, and by the way, one other important thing is that we also have to give a replacement income that's equivalent to a fair minimum wage to those people who can't work. Now today with the pandemic, there are a lot of people who can't work because it's not safe or we can't find safe work for people to do. They deserve repla replacement income until they can find jobs that are safe. We have to give replacement income to people who are uh, either retired or disabled. And our current levels of, of benefits under social security are at a poverty rate. Uh, it's below $1,200 a month for those who are disabled. It's a little over $1,400 a month for retirees. That's not enough to live on. A $20 an hour wage comes to $41,600 a year. That's about $3,500 a month. That's really what anyone needs to live decently.
So these issues, they're often discussed in a domestic context, and in in some ways that makes sense. It's a, it's a Medicare for all system for people living in the United States, a jobs guarantee for people living in the United States. But often I think the the vision that animates these ideas that you've been talking about isn't really discussed in the context of foreign policy, um, but you do offer a, a a vision on foreign policy that addresses preventing and recovering from pandemics, calls for an international Green New Deal. For people who have not thought about these issues and the values that they represent, in the context of foreign policy and not just domestic policy, what is the importance of the foreign policy vision that you are calling for in your platform? Well, generally, I think one has to recognize that it makes no sense to think in terms of only concerning oneself with our welfare and our security without regard for that of other nations and take the view that Donald Trump often seems to be to be putting before us of America first uh, without regard for other nations. I mean, the fact is that our security is intimately bound up with the security of other nations. We see that with the pandemic. You know, we cannot protect ourselves from the pandemic without ensuring that epidemics are caught wherever they spring up in the world and that the resources are available to stop them in their tracks before they can turn into a pandemic. I mean, we cannot shut ourselves off from contact with the rest of the world. That is not feasible. And we've seen that with the pandemic. Even when we stopped having travelers from abroad coming in, it was too late. The pandemic had already gotten here. And of course, we are the number one hotspot in the world with the greatest number of cases and the greatest numbers of fatalities. And there doesn't appear to be much end in sight given the failure of our of our government to really put the federal government and its... And its and its resources to work to keep it under control. Um, But if we're gonna be safe with regard to pandemics, there has to be vast international cooperation. And that means not only having researchers around the world seeing what pathogens are developing in animal communities, because 75% of new diseases come from animals transmitting something to humans. And the occurrences of those interspecies transmissions are accelerating owing to climate change because climate change is driving animals from habitats uh, that are becoming warmer than they can stand into other habitats. And that is that is going to mean that we are going to be facing more and more threats of pandemic than ever before. And we have to ensure that we and other nations you know, uh, cooperate so that we have stockpiles available to any place where an outbreak occurs to provide the protective equipment, the testing uh, resources, and the care resources to keep things contained. And another part of that is when it's, things are not contained sufficiently, and you have to have shutdowns of non-essential work to prevent the outbreak spreading, um, we have to ensure that the livelihoods of people are provided for. Um, you know, in this country, you know, we've seen how people are crying out for things to reopen. Uh, it's not just because they're tired of being at home. It's because we have not been providing people adequate replacement income. They are driven out of economic hardship to demand to go to work. But we have to ensure that the workplace is, is safe, and employee empowerment plays a big role in that. Because I think we we all have encountered examples of employers who, driven by their own economic pressures, are opening before they can provide adequately safe workspaces. And they're not necessarily telling workers who become sick to go home and isolate themselves, especially when they're not offering paid leave to workers who are under pressure to stay on the job. Well, that's one part of the the, um, international scope of pandemics. Of course, it applies to climate change more than anything else. Uh, You know, we are the biggest polluter and the biggest contributor to greenhouse gases of any nation in in human history. But we are no longer the major source of such pollution, of such greenhouse gases. We we make up 15% of the production or the emissions of greenhouse gas. Indeed, we have to have a bold plan 
to achieve zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. But we also need to make that an international crusade. And I mean, 2030 is, is 10 years from now. I grew up at a time when Kennedy told the nation, you know, within a decade, we're going to get someone on the moon. My parents grew up when unbeknownst to them, Albert Einstein and, and other nuclear scientists approached FDR and said, we have to beat the Nazis to the atom bomb, which we did in four years. And we're not facing any of the kind of technological challenges that those efforts faced. We have everything we need to make the transition, to shut down the fossil fuel industry and to go into 100% green energy, which can involve, by the way, not only wind and solar, but biofuels. So we can have jet airplanes and combustion engines operating. Uh, we can also have a kind of safe nuclear power. There's developing uh, what's called a, a fourth generation nuclear reactors that, that have a kind of fail-safe process. They can't be used for nuclear proliferation. They use up the spent fuel, which we don't know what to do with, um, and, and there are various other technologies. But this has to be done on a worldwide scale. And we have to allow those nations that are struggling to lift their people out of poverty, and they need more energy to do that. We have to ensure that they don't have to build hundreds and hundreds of coal firing plants. We need to help them find the resources to go green. And that's a matter of life and death. I mean, look at the fires breaking out all, in the, all over the West Coast. Look at the intensity and, and number of, of hurricanes battering our shores. Uh, things are only gonna get worse unless we take decisive action. And that is a key matter of foreign policy. And it's another example of where our security is intimately connected to the security of other nations. That, by the way, also applies to nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, we emerged from World War II as the one and only nuclear power. We, of course, are the only nation that actually used nuclear weapons. World War II ended up being a nuclear war, the one and only nuclear war so far in human history. But, you know, we were in a position of un what appeared to be unchallenged security. We had a monopoly on nuclear weapons. Our nation was not devastated in the way in which every other industrial nation was devastated during World War II. And we then proceeded to spend trillions of dollars on, on defense. And now where are we? A small impoverished nation like North Korea has been able to build nuclear weapons and ICBMs to deliver them where they can destroy our major cities in you know, a matter of minutes. And of course, Russia can completely obliterate the United States in less than an hour, in 15 minutes, if one makes a stupid blunder or whatever. So, I mean, to some degree, we have to recognize when we make nations feel that the only way they can defend themselves from regime change is by having nuclear weapons, which I think was the case in North Korea. It's also the case in Iran. And when Trump pulled out of the nuclear agreement uh, with Iran, he's pushing Iran to develop nuclear weapons and put our lives in danger. So I think we have to keep in mind that, uh, again, our security depends upon the security of other nations. And this has to be something that we take take very, very seriously in our foreign policy. So you have an expansive vision that you've described here, both foreign and domestic. Um, but to some extent, that vision meets a bit of a political reality in the Senate race. Um, you are running in this race, and the most prominent Democratic candidate in, the, in this race is probably uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock. And both your campaign and his campaign speak to some of the significant challenges that we've talked about, but the prescriptions that each of you offer for these issues are different. You know, Reverend Warnock supports encouraging technical training, helping small businesses get capital and advocating for a livable wage. Your plan goes further than that, calling for the jobs guarantee. We talked about the $20 minimum wage and the changes to unions. You know, Warnock supports a Medicare buy-in while you support single-payer Medicare for all. You've backed a Green New Deal while Reverend Warnock has not made that same call. Do you think that Reverend Warnock in the policies that he is backing, do you think that that's inadequate to solving these big challenges? You know, do the problems of our time require these larger scale demands that, that your platform calls for? I mean, I think Warnock, like Lieberman, also like, like Ed Tarver, is basically supporting the, the policies that are those of let's say centrist in the Democratic Party uh, that are very much akin to the kind of policies that uh, Obama um, was pursuing. And I think that they have proven not to be adequate. They are not sufficient 
to eliminate entrenched racial and gender disadvantage. They, they, are not, they have not proven to be sufficient, nor will they be sufficient, to reduce the accelerating income and wealth inequality. They're not sufficient really to deal with our, our, our climate crisis, which requires really decisive action. And they're not sufficient to really provide healthcare coverage to everyone and to make healthcare affordable for the nation at large. And they certainly are not capable of reversing the erosion in employee empowerment and the way in which wages have become a declining share of national income. They are, they are now at their lowest level in American history. So none of the policies being offered by these, shall we say, more establishment democratic candidates are going to be sufficient to avert the crises that have led us to the cliff at which we stand. And that's the problem. I mean, it's clearly, they will not cause as much damage as Donald Trump and his Republican accomplices. So I definitely will support any Democrat who is on the ballot if I do not win. And I, I, I will support Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, even though I would have much preferred that Bernie Sanders had been the nominee. Uh, because they will not wreak as much havoc as Donald Trump. But we need to push them to go further. And it's particularly disappointing for me to see uh, Reverend Warnock failing to offer the policies that were a key to the policies of his predecessor, Martin Luther King, who recognized that job training is not enough if you don't have jobs available and if those jobs do not pay well. I mean, actually, if you go back and look at pictures of the March on Washington, the signs that proliferated said, full employment plus civil rights equals freedom. The idea of guaranteed jobs at fair wages was central to the social rights agenda that Martin Luther King opted for. And I'm really disappointed that none of the mainstream candidates on the Democratic side are pushing for guaranteed jobs, for genuine employee parity with um, employers. They're not pushing for what we need to balance work and family. I mean, we need free public child and elder care. None of them are for that. None of them are for what the government says you need to afford the cost of, of raising a child. You need $900 a month. We need a child allowance. You have it in many countries in Europe to wipe out childhood poverty. None of them are for that. Um, none of them are for having national funding of public education because we can't allow the funding to, to depend on states who use property taxes where there are huge inequities and how much funding students have depending upon the wealth of their neighborhoods. And I, I'm also in favor of something that Bernie Sanders was for, but none of these other candidates are for, which I think is, is crucial for a whole generation of young people. Uh, we need to get rid of student debt and forgive it entirely, but we also have to ensure that all institutions of higher learning that are public are not just tuition free, but have stipends sufficient to live on. Uh, you know, but also another thing that none of these other candidates are for is a policy that I, I, I really am not happy to see that I'm the only one advancing it. It's called legal care for all. Because we all know that our whole legal system has turned into one big toll road where how you fare depends upon how much money you have. And to go through it, money is taken away from you. Uh, it sucks in poor people predominantly and leaves them poorer and more disadvantaged by the time it is done with them. And a key part of this is we do not afford equal legal resources, equal, equal legal representation. You know, the Sixth Amendment gives us the right to legal representation in criminal cases, but we all know the way it's implemented is you, you don't have a dream team if you don't have money of your own. You end up with an overburdened public defender or court-appointed lawyer who's paid little, has no resources for court investigations, has a huge caseload, and that's why 95% of criminal cases end up as a highway to mass incarceration, namely with plea bargaining. But also, we're not given legal defense of any sort in civil cases where everything is at stake, any harm regarding work, family, housing, child custody, whatever, discrimination, sexual harassment. Legal care for all would operate like Medicare for all. You go to any lawyer of your choice in all personal, criminal, and civil cases, no copays, no deductibles, no premiums, and the rates are fairly negotiated between the government legal insurance operation and the legal profession. 
And then we can all be equal before the law. And you know, if you can't be equal before the law, none of the rights you have are rights that are really ones that you have protected. So I think taken together, it's disappointing that Warnock, Lieberman, and I'd have to say the same thing for Asif. I'd have to say the same thing for Biden and Kamala Harris, although once upon a time she supported Medicare for all, um, that they're not sticking up for these measures, which I think would make people excited to vote for them. And we need to generate excitement. Um, there was a once upon a time for the Democratic Party, the so-called New Deal coalition, which involved on the one hand, African-Americans and other, other minorities, but also employees, the workers. Now, I think we all know that in Georgia and much of the South and much of the Midwest and elsewhere, the white working class has deserted the Democratic Party. And they've deserted it because they feel betrayed. And I think with a certain amount of good reason. It's a Democratic Party, when it's been in power, despite claiming to be a friend of labor, has not succeeded in reversing the decline of the labor movement and reversing the racing income inequality, which has left wages stagnating and becoming a smaller and smaller share of our national income. So you've put forward this vision, and I think in an attempt to potentially rebuild part of that New Deal coalition, but despite that your campaign has not gained the traction that Reverend Warnock's has or even Matt Lieberman's has, um, in the polling that I've been able to find, uh, you are often not listed as a candidate um, you might fit under the sort of other Democratic candidates buckets. I know there's like 20 people in this race. Um, we have about seven weeks or so until Election Day. Um, how do you position yourself between now and Election Day to be successful in November, to put yourself in a position to win this race outright or to to at least make a runoff? Yeah, well, no one is going to win the race outright. There's going to be a runoff. Um, but what I'm facing is what all candidates face who are not darlings of the establishment, awash with money and press attention. You know, we are in a political system where money to a huge degree uh, determines whether the voters have a chance to know anything about you whatsoever. And under conditions of pandemic where in-person campaigning has pretty much been eliminated, it's all the more difficult to get out to the voters. and. What contributes to this is that the press, the media, are not doing the job they should be doing in a democracy of informing the public of all the candidates and what they stand for and discussing the issues. And our, our campaign system does not provide the resources to all candidates to be able to inform the voters. I mean, I know when I ran for Congress in the 10th district as a Democrat, uh, it's extremely hard to get any support because people consider it a lost cause. The press is pretty much evaporated when you're outside the metro areas. People just don't know. They don't know who you are. They don't find out anything about you. And I'm facing that now. I think the reason I don't register in the polls is because the vast majority of voters know, don't know me from Adam. Well, there's seven months to go. I was hoping before the pandemic came that I would have a shot of, first of all, I wouldn't be dealing with gerrymandering in a statewide election. And, and now, as we all know, as uh, Stacey Abrams' election showed, the numbers of Republicans and Democratic voters are very, very close, even with significant um, voter suppression. I was hoping that there would be free press coverage, because this is a race of national significance. But there hasn't been all that much press coverage of this race, partly because the other race, which had its primary, was first drawing attention, and then everything else is, 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 is breaking loose. Um, but I'm still hoping there will be more press attention. I'm hoping to get what I stand for out in the media. I'm hoping to develop a, a somewhat of a grassroots social media campaign and break through. Of course, I'll need some lucky breaks. Um, but my hope is, is to make use of virtual communications as best I can and try to get as much coverage as I can, free coverage in the press, and take advantage of podcasts like your own, you know, which do a service to our nation by giving candidates who cannot buy TV ads, give them a chance to speak and speak at length. Because even if I could buy TV ads, how much can you say in a TV ad? 
you know, the establishment candidates don't have very much to say in general anyhow. I mean, what do they tell us about? They tell us about their personal story and hardly talk about policy at all. Um, and often that's because their policy differences with their opponents are very small, especially in primary races. Um, but we, we need to do better than that. I'm a long shot, but the field is so split. The darlings of the establishment are not really catching on as one would have expected. I mean, Warnock is still neck and neck with Lieberman. And, he, and Warnock has much more establishment support, much more money than Lieberman. Uh, but he's not offering an exciting platform any more than Lieberman is. And I think uh, there is an opening. There is an opening. At least if, if people know about me, um, I think when they hear about this message, they react to it favorably because we are, we are, we are undergoing all a wake-up call. We are at a turning point in our history. We are at the midnight hour. And if we're going to survive and avoid destitution and avoid a, a climate catastrophe, we need to break the mold. We cannot do business as usual. We cannot put old wine in new bottles. We, we cannot succumb to political cowardice. If you don't make the runoff in this race, do you have any concerns about being a spoiler for the leading Democrat, whether it is Reverend Warnock or Matt Lieberman or Ed Tarver or, or anyone else in this race. I mean, I think you know, and, and our listeners probably know too, that the structure of this race means candidates of all parties are on one ballot and the top two vote getters, regardless of party, are likely to end up in a runoff. And polling, recent polling raises the possibility that two Republicans, Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins, could be the top two vote getters. Any vote for you in November, if you do not make the runoff, is a vote that could have potentially gone to the leading Democrat. So does that possibility impact the way you run this race at all? And, and do you think that your race, you will be campaigning through Election Day in November, you'll be trying to get supporters all the way till the end? Well, I, I mean, I think if you look at the situation, you know, I'm not the spoiler. You could say there are three spoilers. There are Warnock. Lieberman, and to a lesser degree, Tarver. And I say that because all of them, as far as I can see, are indistinguishable when it comes to policy. They all fall within that same democratic centrist field. I don't think there's any position on, on which there's really any genuine controversy between them. So I don't think there really is a legitimate reason for all three of them to be in the race. And, and if any one of them would drop out, particularly if either Warnock or Lieberman dropped out, that would guarantee right away that a Democrat will make it to the runoff. My dropping out is, is really inconsequential at this point, unless I have a major breakthrough. And then I would be attracting people other than those who are supporting Warnock and Lieberman and Tarver. Because there's another group of Democrats out there um, who were those, for example, attracted to, to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And there are enough of them that uh, I could have a breakthrough if they knew about me and were informed of the differences. But I think the, the, the question about spoiling should be directed to three people, Warnock, Lieberman, and Tarver. And whereas I'm offering a very different choice and the voters need to have a genuine choice. And I think if anyone accuses me of, of being a spoiler, they're really turning in the wrong direction. And I think the facts show that. Let's talk a little bit about the ideas that you're advocating for and and how they could be put into place in the long run. You know, you you have this Senate race, but it does feel like among progressives who are increasingly challenging um, sitting centrist Democrats, it does feel like there is a something that is, is building towards longer run success. You know, House challengers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cori Bush, they've ousted long-term establishment Democrats. In more moderate to conservative places, somebody like Marquita Bradshaw, she's a progressive candidate trying to flip a deep red Tennessee Senate seat. Kara Eastman is trying to do something similar in a conservative House seat in Nebraska. And Bernie Sanders now has run two uh, presidential campaigns um, that continue to put the issues that you and other progressives are discussing, continue to put those on the map. Taking a longer view, how do candidates with platforms like yours appeal 
to voters who have traditionally backed candidates like Lieberman or Warnock or even traditionally backed Republicans, um, how did how do candidates with your vision win these races? And, and do you think that you need success across a broader swath of the political map to be able to get these ideas enacted into law? I mean, I, I, I think it's it's possible at the national level for major parts of my platform to be adopted based upon uh, the Democratic representation in the Senate and the House of Representatives and in the presidency if there is a blue wave in 2020 where Democrats take control. Because even if they may not have two-thirds in the Senate, they can change the rules. They don't have to abide by these majoritarian rules of and that include the, um, uh, what do you call it, the filibuster and the like. Uh, so it would be possible to put forward an agenda because we're in an emergency situation. I mean, we really are on 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 the edge of a of a catastrophe, a health catastrophe, an economic catastrophe, a, a global crisis, and of course we're we're facing the threat of autocracy. You know, we have a president who sh has showing his disdain for the Constitution. He's showing that he, he's not going to respect the results of the election if he loses. Um, so I think. One need not have to reach across the aisle necessarily, but on the other hand, the platform I'm offering, I think has tremendous appeal for people who have been seduced by the, I think, fraudulent populism of Donald Trump. And after all, he has won support, as Republicans before him have done, from many white working class people who feel that they've been neglected and forgotten about. And you know, they've seen their jobs eroding losing jobs, losing well-paid jobs, losing, finding their income, being less and less viable. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm offering the real solutions to that. You know, Trump can promise to bring jobs back, but a job guarantee guarantees jobs. You know you will have a job at a fair wage. Whereas tariffs, what are they gonna do? The only thing they guarantee is that consumers will pay more for products that are imported <clears throat> under a tariff. Uh, jobs, they're not coming back here. They'll go to South Vietnam instead of China or somewhere else. But a job guarantee brings jobs to everyone. <clears throat> so I think we can make a case, a strong case, on these meat and potatoes issues, right? It's the economy stupid, said Bill Clinton. And when we're talking about the economy stupid, we're talking about economic opportunity. And that also happens to be the solution to eliminating uh, racial and gender disadvantage because the social rights agenda does two things. It ensures, it wipes out poverty. It ensures that everyone has a sufficient income to live decently. And it ensures that everything you need to be able to enjoy and make the choices you want is available to you no matter how much wealth and income you have. You will get healthcare no matter how much money you have. You will be able to have your dream team as legal defenders no matter how much money you'll have. You'll be able to go to college no matter how much money you'll have. And of course, we haven't spoken much about housing policy, but we need to ensure that everyone has decent housing. We have to eliminate the shame of, of homelessness, which is also a danger to our health in a time of pandemic. We need to be able to shelter at home. So all of these things, I think, make clear sense to anyone who hears about them. And like I said, we are now all in a situation facing tremendous insecurity, both with regard to health, and our livelihoods. Now that anxiety can be taken advantage of by anti-democratic nationalists, fascists, people like Trump and the, the alt-right and their counterparts throughout the world. But if we give the proper solutions, that threat to democracy can be undercut. So I think there is hope. And look, when, when you run for office, you're, you're attempting to change the political climate. You're attempting to change a political conversation. You're attempting to put ideas out there that the electorate has never heard about, but that they should have heard about. So even if I am very much a long shot, I think I will have accomplished, at least to, to some degree, not as big a degree as, as I might've hoped, but to some degree to be presenting this agenda, the jobs guarantee social rights agenda. After all, if I wasn't running for office, I wouldn't be speaking to you on a podcast as I've spoken on, on many other podcasts. That's uh, true. So um, here we so are. For 
as we get close to wrapping up here, for people who would like to see an agenda like this put into place, you know, and you've spoken of the fact that we are in an emergency situation right now, an emergency situation on so many fronts from the pandemic um, to the state of the economy to um, the looming threat of climate change. Those, I think, are, you know, the na- the emergency nature of that does, I think, necessitate quick action. But for a strategy for building power over the long run, do you think that backers of an agenda like yours also need to focus on state and local offices, state legislatures, county commissions, things of that nature, um, and getting candidates and, and politicians in place who can build skills, develop political careers, and and succeed on those levels before potentially going to the national level? Do you think that's an important part of enacting your vision also? I, I don't think it's a before and after. I think things have to be done simultaneously. And one of the big mistakes of the Democratic Party is that it did not pay enough attention to state races, whereas the Republican Party did. And the Republican Party, despite having less support than Democrats nationally, managed to take something like a supermajority control over state governments. And having done that, they control uh, the redistricting process which allows them to, in effect, take a kind of supermajority control of congressional representation and be overrepresented, in effect, at the national level. So I think it's crucial to work at all levels. Um, I chose this race to go at the higher level, despite the enormity of the challenge, because I'm speaking about policies that, in a way, can only be resolved at the federal level, because local governments and states simply don't have the resources to be able to pull it off. Now they can do a lot more than they're doing, but they need massive federal support. But nonetheless, we need to get people in there who are, who are attuned to, to the imperfections of our democracy, to, who realize that we are not as free as we should be, that we really need to recognize the challenge of, of bringing into being all of our family and social freedoms, really respecting family values in a true sense so that we can take care of our families without have to sacrificing our careers and our political involvements. And that pertains particularly to women. Well, Richard, I really appreciate you spending all this time with us today. Uh, before we go, are there any other issues you'd like to touch on? I mean, one thing I, th- I, th- I mean, there are two issues I'd like to, to speak about that I think are, are important. One has to do with reproductive health. Um, and I really think that the opposition between pro-choice and pro-life movements it has really been exaggerated. And of course, uh, conservative movements have, have made use of, of the anti-abortion struggle. They've weaponized it for other purposes. But I, I, I think we, let me give you the following argument in a brief way to show how one really shouldn't think of there being a fundamental opposition. We all know that if abortion is banned, it doesn't end abortions. They go underground. And that means not only do abortions continue, but women have their health sacrificed and endangered, particularly poor women by having to go to inadequate uh, medical facilities to have the abortion. But the other side of it is that we are not balancing family and, and work. Uh, so that many people in this nation, many women in particular and, and parents generally, are not able to have the children they wanna have because they don't have the resources to deal with the cost of upbringing or with balancing work and family. So if we put into place the social rights agenda, balanced work and family with free child and elder care, child allowances that cover the expenses of having children, paid leave, have secure employment with guaranteed jobs and replacement income, have Medicare for all that would cover not just, not just abortions, but all kinds of uh, um, reproductive health matters. We, in a sense, would bring the number of abortions to a humanly possible minimum whereas the pro-life movement does not and cannot do that. It's actually when you fully realize reproductive health that you achieve the goals of the pro-life movement if, if we take them seriously. So I think one needs to recognize that. We need to stand up for genuine free reproductive health for women and parents, 
which actually brings abortions to an, as much of a minimum as is humanly possible, because no one wants to have an abortion. People choose to have abortions because of all sorts of difficulties they have in having the children they want to have and being able to support themselves. The second thing I want to speak about are, are, are guns and the proliferation of guns, because it's, it's, it's really becoming evident. Not only is it a huge health problem in the United States, it's also a threat to our democracy. Now, it's a huge health problem because, you know, now more than 40,000 people are shot dead by guns each year. About 250,000 are wounded. Only 30% of Americans have guns, 70% do not, but all of us bear the cross of this carnage. And the carnage is really inflicted on gun owners themselves. I mean, 60% of, of gun deaths are suicides. Uh, I had a student who was going into social work and I had to write a letter of recommendation for her and she was recounting how she decided to do it because her brother who had been in the army had, had committed suicide with a gun as had several other people in his unit. And she wanted to work on, on this kind of issue. And she pointed out that every day, 20 veterans shoot themselves to death. Every day, about 60 or 70 people shoot themselves to death in this country. Uh, and, and the other side of it is, now we see all sorts of demonstrations where people, particularly on the right, particularly white supremacists, or what we could even call fascists, are coming to demonstrations in combat gear with combat weapons and menacing everyone else. How can we have a free political process? You know, they're invading state legislatures as well. And unfortunately, this, this, the police are standing aside and not protecting anyone from them. And I'm worried about what will happen on November 4th. If, as I hope, uh, Donald Trump is soundly defeated, of course, we won't know that for several days because of mail-in voting, and Donald Trump says, I don't respect this election, it's fraudulent, et cetera, and he calls out his armed supporters. You know, our democracy will be under threat. We need to keep guns out of public spaces so that we can be free, so that we can have free intellectual discussion. I mean, I'm at UGA, and students can be packing weapons in any class. You know, how can we have a free discussion? Especially if you're a philosophy professor where you press all buttons, you know, without any holding back. Um, so we, people should keep their guns at home, locked up safely, unloaded in their cars. They can take them to firing ranges, they can take them to hunting grounds, but they shouldn't be anywhere else. And they should also pay a liability insurance, just like car owners do, and be really responsible for all the harm they produce. And those are some steps that are not have not been adopted by a lot of the good sense movements. I am an approved gun sense candidate, but I think we need to take these measures as well um, for the sake of our health, for the sake of our democracy. Well, Richard, I've really enjoyed this discussion. If our listeners would like to learn more about your campaign for the Senate, how could they do that? Well, there, there are three things I would recommend. First, go to my campaign website, it's winfieldforsenate.com. I spell Winfield, W-I-N-F-I-E-L-D, and it's the word for F-O-R. And then I recommend listen to my podcast, America Unchained, where I'm discussing many of these issues at considerable depth. And then take a look at the book I wrote in between these two campaigns, uh, where I'm trying to, to think hard about what are the problems afflicting our nation? What are the real solutions? and how can we implement the solutions and, and also uh, fund them properly. Uh, the book is called Democracy Unchained. It's available in all sorts of formats. Uh, so take a look at that. And I need supporters in these last two months. You can donate through the website. You can volunteer through the, the website. And the website will tell you about all my social media efforts on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube. And go to it, spread the word as best you can. Uh, both for this election and for the future. You know, I'm here to see, to plant some seeds and that much I, I am certain I can do. Richard Dean Winfield, he is a candidate for the U.S. Senate here in Georgia. He is in that jungle primary uh, for the seat currently held by Kelly Leffler and you are going to find him along with all of the other candidates in this race on your ballot on general election day in November. Richard, we really appreciate you joining the podcast. Well, thanks a lot. It's, I think it's a true public service to give the candidate a chance to speak at length about the real solutions we need. So thank you.
That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all. 